All right. I hope everyone's been having good conversations, been able to say hi to the people around them. I want to invite Ben to come read today's scripture reading for us from Daniel 1. Good morning, everyone. Morning. The scripture reading is in the first book of Daniel, verses 1 down to 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who ate the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Hey everyone. It's great to be here with you today. This year, as a church, we've been going through the story of the Bible on our Sundays, and we've reached the point in the Bible where the Israelites have been sent into exile in Babylon because they've continued to rebel against God. Is that on right? There we go. 
All right, so we looked at exile the past couple weeks. Today, we're, we're zooming in and looking at one specific story from one small group of teenage boys early on during their time in exile. And at first glance, this passage may feel like it has absolutely nothing to do with our lives today. Because, I mean, none of us are in exile as far as I know, despite what COVID travel rules might make it feel like. None of us is being forced to stay here in Hong Kong as a slave away from our homelands. And if that's the case, what can we learn from this group of exiles living 2,500 years ago in a foreign country? Well, it turns out the answer is a lot. If you were here last week, Les was talking about exile. And one of the things he mentioned is that the Christian life is actually a life of exile. In Peter, it says that that we are living as strangers and exiles in the world. Paul says that we're citizens of God's kingdom if we're Christians, but we're living in a world that opposes his rule, opposes his teaching. And so that means that if we're Christians and we're trying to live faithful to our identity as God's people, each of us every single day is going to experience and encounter things that call us to abandon our identity as God's people. And so we need to know how to respond properly to these situations. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, so many Christians respond poorly to this tension that we live in. And I think for a lot of non-Christians, seeing Christians respond poorly to this tension is often one of the biggest things that keeps them from wanting to be a Christian themselves. And so taking the time to actually look at how the Bible calls us to live in this tension can be really powerful for you as well in helping you see not how Christians have failed to live out Christianity properly, but how the Bible actually calls Christians to live in this tension. And the big question that we're faced with in today's passage is, what does it look like to live properly in the midst of a culture that's constantly calling us to turn from God? What does it look like to live properly in the midst of a culture that's constantly calling us to turn from God? And what we're going to see is that knowing God is the key to living as a faithful presence in the world. Knowing God is the key to living as a faithful presence in the world. So we're going to look at life in exile, the two temptations of exile, separation and assimilation, and then the goal of exile, which is faithful presence. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in and look at the passage. Father, I pray that you would be speaking to us today through your word. You would show us who you are. You would show us who we are in relation to you and how you call us to live in response to you and that you would be reshaping and transforming our hearts so that we respond properly to you as we go throughout our lives in the world. God, teach us to live as a faithful presence in the midst of our world today. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, life in exile. Daniel and his friends in this chapter, they are sent off into exile. They're taken from Israel and sent to the land of Babylon. And that meant that they were in a land that opposed Yahweh, the God of Israel. They, they were, th- throughout the Bible, the land of Babylon is sort of like the, the stereotypical go-to example of a place that is opposed to God. You see it all the way back in the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. And then if you go through all the way to the book of Revelation, it constantly refers to this evil kingdom of the world that opposes God as Babylon. And every step in between, Babylon is this, the go-to example of a place that opposes God. And Babylon, they worshiped 
false gods. They worshiped a God whose name was Bel or Marduk. They sort of, it's one God, but they just use both names to refer to this same God, Bel or Marduk. And Babylonian life was centered around their gods. So when Daniel and his friends get to Babylon, they're thrown into a world that's pushing them to reorient their lives around the gods of this new nation. They're forced to study the literature of this new nation, which would have largely been religious literature, the mythology of Babylon. Their names are changed to reflect the Babylonian gods. And they're given a new diet that violates the Jewish dietary laws, but is totally fine by the Babylonians' God's standard. And again, this situation may seem slightly disconnected to our lives, like the food laws of the Old Testament don't apply anymore. We can eat whatever we want today. Or most of us don't have people going around trying to change our names on us. But the reality holds true in every culture of the world, including ours, that the life of a society is centered around its gods. The life of a society is centered around its gods. And just as with Daniel and his friends in this passage, the gods of our world call for us to align our lives around them rather than the God of the Bible. And you might think, oh, but Eric, don't you understand? Our culture doesn't have gods anymore. We've moved past that. We're more sophisticated and, and advanced than that. But the reality is it does. The gods of our culture are the things that our culture claims can offer us ultimate hope and purpose in life. And we have many of these things. I'll give you two, two easy examples. One, romance. The idol or the false god of romance says you're nobody till somebody loves you. And in light of that reality, it's not only acceptable, but actually right to do whatever it takes to find romantic love. Sexual ethics that have been in place for millennia across the world get thrown out the window in order to satisfy the god of romance. So if you're a woman and you're dating this guy and he says, I won't keep going out with you unless you start sleeping with me, Go ahead, do it. That's actually a good thing because you're on the path to finding romance. If you're a guy and you can't find any girls to love you, well then just start finding a guy to love you. That's fine. It doesn't matter. And if anyone tries to stand up against this idol and fight for biblical sexual ethics, society is going to condemn you and cancel you. Why? Because you've attacked their God. Or another example, comfort. The idol of comfort says, do what feels good for you. How many things are marketed to us using the promise that this will make your life easier and more comfortable? You know why they use that line to sell things to us? Because our society idolizes comfort. America, where I grew up, is struggling with an obesity epidemic. Did you know this? More than one out of three Americans are obese. And I realize some people genetically are just bigger people, but you don't get a society where more than one out of three people are obese without idolizing comfort. Because what do people do? They want to be comfortable. So they sit on the couch all day and they just eat the yummiest foods and then they get huge and destroy their bodies. And again, if you try to point out these problems to obese Americans, what's going to happen? They're going to freak out at you because you have just insulted their God. 
And these are two examples. We could add so many more, but the reality is just as true today as it was then. Society's gods call for us to orient our lives around them, to see the world through their perspective. They push us to abandon the God of the Bible and his interpretation of what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, how to live properly. And they call us to follow their interpretation of life instead. And so in a very real sense, the world has not changed at all, at all in the past 2,500 years. The names of the idols and false gods may have changed. The specific temptations they place in front of us may have changed. But the reality is true, both then and now, that it is difficult to live as God's people in the world. It's difficult to live as God's people because we live in a world that's constantly pushing us to abandon the real God and instead follow false ones. That's the core essence of life in exile, living in a land that's calling you to abandon your God. That's the core essence of life in exile, living in a land that's calling you to abandon your God. It's what Daniel and his friends face in today's passage. It's what any Christian trying to live faithful to God faces in today's world. And the question is, how do we respond well in the face of these temptations? And so the first temptation that we're going to look at in in the midst of this tension is what we're going to call separation. See, when people trying to follow God faithfully are faced with this temptation to turn turn from God, there are two really standard responses that people tend to take that are readily available to the Israelites back then, that are readily available to us today. And both of them are wrong responses. And the first wrong response is separation. Separation is the response that says, God calls me to live a certain way. The non-Christian world around me is going to corrupt me and keep me from living that way. Therefore, I must avoid all interaction with the world around me. The world is COVID, I must quarantine so that I don't get exposed. And this has been a quite common response by the church throughout the years. If you don't come from a background that practices this, maybe you look at this response and you think, oh, they're so old fashioned. That's, That's not a good response. We can all understand that, right? But as someone who grew up surrounded by this response and in my very early years was quite shaped by this response. I can tell you from from personal experience, there are some quite appealing things to separation, appealing reasons why people want to separate and withdraw from culture. The the biggest one is that it takes away ambiguity. Because when we separate from everything around us so that we can be faithful to God, it's very clear who are the good ones who are faithful, who are obeying God, and who are the not good ones It keeps things simple when we separate from society completely and we appreciate simplicity. And just as this is a temptation today, it was a temptation for Daniel and his friends when they were in exile. And we can see in today's passage, Daniel and his friends, they want to live faithfully for God, even in their captivity. And yet they're asked to do some things in today's passage that we, I think many of us might be uncomfortable with. And if you know anything about the story of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you probably know stories about them being thrown in the fiery furnace or the lion's den for standing up for God in the midst of their society. And yet, in today's passage, they do some things that a lot of us would sort of cringe at 
if we were faced with that scenario. And so one easy response for them would just be to say no to all of it. But from their response in Daniel chapter one, we see that they reject that temptation to completely separate. And we see this in a couple places. The first place is that Daniel and his friends, when they go to exile, they have to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, the language would be essential just for functioning in day-to-day life, being able to communicate with the people around you. But the literature would have mainly been religious in nature, studying about the gods of Babylon, learning their stories. And, And their training in Babylon was essentially them being put in a government re-education camp, trying to brainwash them to see Babylon as the good place and everyone else as not. And so for Daniel and his friends, studying this Babylonian literature would basically be like a Christian teenager being enrolled in a Buddhist school and spending most of their time each day in Buddhist indoctrination camp. And I'm guessing there are some parents here who might be really hesitant about putting your kid in that type of a school. Maybe. And I'm guessing, I could be wrong, I'm guessing there are some people here who, if you heard that another family from their church had put their children into Buddhist indoctrination school, you might have some concerns about what's going on with their faith. You might have some questions about why they would do that. And, and do they really love Jesus if they're putting their kid in a school that's going to intentionally teach them not to follow Jesus? And if you couldn't be, see it before, can you see now why separation is so appealing to so many people? Because By avoiding the situation completely, you avoid the confusion, you avoid the gray areas, you avoid the awkward, uncomfortable conversations. And I'm not just, by the way, I'm not saying that you should put your kids in a school where they're just gonna spend all day in Buddhist indoctrination camp, but I'm saying that's the type of school that Daniel and his friends were put into by the king. And Daniel and his friends, they could have said, no, I'm not gonna learn this, just kill me, or have me do some manual labor instead, but they didn't do that. They studied, they learned the Babylonian mythology, which might seem to you like a major area of compromise. And yet we see in verse 17 that God blessed their studies. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God blessed their studies as they engaged with their culture and refused to practice complete separation. Or another area where separation would be a strong temptation. They all had their names changed. Now, Daniel and his three friends, they all had good Jewish names that celebrated the God of the Bible. And when they get to Babylon, they're given new names. And throughout the Bible, anytime someone gets a new name, it's a big deal because it's essentially a way of saying who you used to be no longer exists. Now your identity and your future are new. And that's actually true in our world today as well. I mean, think about reasons people change their names. In the Western cultures, at least, people change their names when they get married. Justine used to be Justine Maceros. Now she's Justine Scott. Why do you change your name? Because you're saying, I'm now part of a new family. There's something fundamentally different about me from this day forward, and I'm changing my name to represent that. We also see that when a child gets adopted into a new family, they, they change at least their family name, sometimes their given name as well, to reflect the reality that I am now part of a new family. There's something fundamentally new and different about me. Or people get their names changed when they're put into witness protection programs, right? You you get your name changed as a way of completely cutting yourself off from your old life and saying from this day forward, I am someone new. 
And so that's what happens when you get your name changed then and now. It points to a new reality. You say, I'm no longer who I used to be. There's something new going on now instead. And with Daniel and his friends, the new reality that their name change is pointing to is one that most Christians would probably consider the wrong direction. See, their changes are going from things like Daniel, which means God is my judge, to names like Belteshazzar, which means may the Babylonian god Bel protect his life. It would be like if we took someone named Daniel today and changed their name to Muhammad or Krishna. Now again, just like enrolling in Buddhist indoctrination school, I'm assuming most Christians would probably be uncomfortable with that type of name change if, if someone tried to change your name like that. And again, if we heard that someone else in the church had changed their name to something like Muhammad or Krishna, many of us might have some questions about why would you do that? What's going on with your faith right now that leads you to change your name in this way? And again, that's why separation is such a strong temptation for so many people. But with Daniel and his friends, again, they don't resist the name change. They don't separate. They start going by their new names. When you're living in exile, separation is a strong temptation because it keeps things clean and simple. There's a clear right and a clear wrong. But Daniel and his friends show us through their example that separation is the wrong approach. And if you continue reading in the book of Daniel, what you'll see is story after story after story of ways that Daniel and his friends were able to influence and speak God's truth to a series of kings in this foreign empire that opposed God but they only had access to those opportunities. They only had the ability to have that kind of influence because they refused to separate and completely withdraw from this sinful society. The reality is you cannot lovingly engage a society while simultaneously practicing complete separation from it. It's just not possible. And that has some major implications for our lives today. We don't have time to go into all of them, but just one example. Say that you work in a workplace or are involved in a group of friends where there is evil and corruption happening. If that's the case, that is not an automatic sign that God wants you out of there. It might be, but it might not be. It might actually be God's way of positioning you to be a light and influence for him in that place. It may be that if we give in to the temptation to separate from that, company or that group of friends or that whatever, will actually miss out on opportunities to engage the unbelieving world around us in any type of impactful way. Complete separation from the world is the wrong approach if our goal is to live faithfully to God. But it's also not the only wrong approach. The second wrong approach, the second temptation of exile is assimilation. And this is the response that says, God doesn't really want his followers to, to suffer and be excluded. He wants us to have a good life. We can't stand out too much from the crowd. Just do what it takes to fit in. And again, for Daniel and his friends, it would have been so tempting. We're in a new land. Our parents are probably dead, but definitely not around to watch us. We have a new opportunity and we're in training to be advisors to the king. Let's do what we can to get ahead and get money and get power and advance ourselves in this new place to make life as comfortable as possible for ourselves. And it's tempting today too, but again, it's a wrong response. 
And let me just point out too, I think assimilation is a temptation for everyone. It's especially strong temptation for teens. And so teens, I encourage you to play, pay close attention here because the reality is all of us want to fit in. All of us want to make compromises for the sake of belonging. But I think that that urge is just a little bit stronger in our teenage years typically than at most other points in our lives. And so what does assimilation look like in our world today? We assimilate when we refuse to live differently than the world due to our faith. See, God gives us clear commandments in the Bible about how he calls us to live. And assimilation ignores those for the sake of fitting in. We assimilate when we let culture, not God's word, be our guide to determining what is wrong and right. Culture says all religions are equal. Fine, sure, I don't see any issue affirming that while calling myself a Christian. Culture says morality is up to the individual. Yeah, go ahead, live however you want. Don't worry about it. And again, it's really, really tempting. Just like separation, assimilation is really tempting because it saves us the scorn and judgment and rejection of society. And But realize, though, the separation approach can be off-putting to non-Christians. I think most people can see how that can be off-putting. It communicates that, that I am sort of better than you, and it's got this attitude of exclusion and leaving other people out, cutting ourselves off from them. But assimilation can also get in the way of a non-Christian who's considering trusting Jesus for themselves because it actually doesn't look any different than the world. It's just a new label to put on the same life they're already living. But if I'm a non-Christian and I look at you and, and my life and your life look fundamentally the same at most basic levels, there's no need for me to add an extra label to feel better about myself. It's like if I, if I go to one of those clothing shops right outside the wet market and buy some cheap clothes and then go online and buy some Brooks Brothers labels and sew them on there. Right? The, the, the tag looks nice and fancier and more appealing, but at the end of the day, the clothes are exactly the same. They're still cheap and not high quality. And if a non-Christian encounters a Christian who's practicing complete assimilation, it, where their faith makes no difference in their day-to-day life, it's fair for the non-Christian to ask, well, then why do I need Christianity myself? I may as well just keep living the way that I have been and not worry about that expensive label. Assimilation, it's a strong and tempting an appealing thing, but again, it's a wrong and unhelpful response. And again, we see Daniel and his friends rejecting this option of assimilation in today's passage. We see this when the king offers them food from his own table. It's essentially a a Michelin three-star restaurant, best chefs in the world, offering them the filet and the best wine. I would love to eat there. Anyone else? Sounds delicious. And yet that is where Daniel and his friends draw the line. They say, no, 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 here's what we need you to do. Go to the wet market, buy us some veggies, make us a stir fry, serve it with water. We'll eat that instead. Now, why would anyone in their right mind do this? And the answer is because they knew that eating the king's meat would defile them is the word that they used. It means it would be a violation of God's commands to them. It would make them ceremonially unclean under the Jewish law so that they couldn't come into God's presence and worship him. And that would be sin. See, having people call you by another name or being indoctrinated in classes for other religions may look bad, but at the end of the day, Daniel and his friends realize there's nothing inherently sinful in doing those things. 
But eating the foods that God explicitly told them not to eat goes too far, and so that's where they decided to take their stand. And you may be thinking, but Eric, come on, they didn't have any say over what their names were going to be or what they were going to study, but at least with this food, they can make a choice. But that's actually not true. It's quite likely that Daniel's request to not eat the king's food would have been seen by the king as an act of treason. Which means if the king had heard about Daniel's request, he probably would have had Daniel executed. It's not that they had no control over the names and the education, but they had control over the food because they had no control over the food. It's not that the names and the education were really hard to change, but the food was an easy thing to change. No, it, it actually, in, to, to change their diet required a conspiracy involving multiple government officials helping them out. It was a very difficult thing to pull off. It's simply that as Daniel and his friends lived their lives and walked in relationship with God, he realized this is where God was calling him to draw the line if he was going to live faithfully as one of God's people in a foreign land. And so that's where he draws the line. And so Daniel and his friends, they refuse to completely separate from Babylonian society and totally withdraw from the people who are in their new home. But they also refuse to completely assimilate. They step back and they they critically evaluate each step of what they're being asked to do so that they can live as a faithful presence in Babylon. Because just as you can't lovingly engage society through complete separation, you also can't lovingly engage society through complete assimilation, which again has big implications for our lives today. We just mentioned that if you're in a workplace or a group of friends where evil and corruption are happening, it's not necessarily a sign that God wants you out of there. But it's also not a blank check to blindly follow the people around you into all the evil things they do. As Christians, we need to evaluate each action and each step and decide each step of the way whether we should join in or whether we should stand against what's happening in light of God's word. And this is a far, far harder approach than separation or assimilation. It takes way more work to think through. It opens us up to way more rejection and ridicule. It's more uncomfortable. It's just easier to separate or to assimilate, but God calls us, like he called Daniel and his friends, to take this third way today too. So let's look at that third way, the goal of exile, being a faithful presence. Because that's how God wants us to live today. It's how he wanted Daniel and his friends to live then. It's how he wants us to live today as a faithful presence. And like I said, out of all the options available, this is the hardest approach. Because when you live as a faithful presence, you don't have the clear, simple, black and white lines that separation and assimilation bring. And because of that, being truly faithful to God, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you approval from the conservatives and the progressives, from the separators and the assimilators. There's, you're going to have things on each side that you can approve of, which thereby invite the wrath of the other side. And you're going to have things on each side that you disapprove of and therefore invite the wrath of that group. It's just a mess. If you have a separator and an assimilator read through Daniel chapter one, both of them are going to get upset at the things that Daniel and his friends do at some point during this passage. Living as a faithful presence, it takes daily diligence and sacrifice. It's not easy and left to ourselves. That's the type of hard work and sacrifice that we all naturally resist. We don't want to do hard work and make sacrifices if we don't have to. 
And so how do we get to the place where we can live as this type of faithful presence? And there are a few ingredients that we see in this passage that will help us learn to live this way. The first is that Daniel and his friends have faith in God's grace and provision. See, their their family and their friends have all been slaughtered. Their homeland has been destroyed. They've been dragged off as slaves to a foreign land. And yet, Daniel and his friends still completely believe that God is in control. And when we fail to believe that God is in control, we do one of two things. Either we try to earn our own salvation through our own moral effort and achievement, which leads to complete separation, or we say, I don't care about what God's law says because he's not going to enforce his standards anyways, and we assimilate. But the gospel says that God is just and he punishes sin and that salvation is a gift of grace through the death of Jesus on our behalf. When we understand God's justice, that frees us from assimilation because we see the seriousness of sin. And when we understand salvation is a free gift that saves us from separation because we see that our salvation is not up to our own perfect effort. It's up to Jesus who's already achieved perfection for us. It's only when we understand and believe that we are saved by grace alone that we'll understand the seriousness of sin and therefore want to resist it and have the freedom to stop trying to save ourselves. Grace gives us the freedom to live as faithful presences. So that's the first ingredient is grace. Second, Daniel and his friends love their neighbors. I don't know if you realize this, but at the most fundamental level, separation and assimilation are selfish. Now, no one who practices these things will, will say that. You know, a separator will say things like, I'm making great sacrifices for God's sake. But really, separation, it cuts ourselves off from being a blessing to others because we're too scared of being polluted by them. That's not loving. We, we choose the default mode of separation because we're afraid the world's going to corrupt us and we care more about avoiding that potential corruption than we do about loving others. And on the flip side, assimilation cuts ourselves off from being a blessing to others because there's nothing distinct about us that can challenge them and show them the better way of trusting God. We choose the default mode of assimilation because we're afraid the world's going to reject us. And we care more about avoiding that rejection than we do about loving others. Both complete separation and complete assimilation are paths to protecting ourselves, not paths to loving others. But when we love our neighbors, we're willing to get involved in the difficulty and the mess of life in this broken world for the sake of being a blessing to the people around us. We're willing to do things that are not sinful in themselves, but might get us odd looks from good church people if those things give us the opportunities to engage the world around us for Jesus. And at the same time, we're willing to say no to things that truly are wrong and sinful, which might get us ridicule from the world because saying no to sin is part of living as a light for Jesus. And again, in order to show this type of love for others, we're never going to do that until we understand that salvation is completely a gift of free grace. So first, faith in God's grace. Second, love for neighbors. The third ingredient is wisdom. We looked in our journey through the Bible at the book of Proverbs, and we saw wisdom is skill for practical living that comes from a relationship with God. 
Separation does not require wisdom because there's a clear black and white list of what is right and what is wrong. And as long as you follow that list, you're good. Assimilation doesn't require wisdom because anything goes. Which means if wisdom is skill for practical living that comes through a relationship with God and separation and assimilation both don't require wisdom, that means that in order to be a separator or in order to be an assimilator, you don't need a relationship with God. You can do it on your own power. But being a faithful presence requires wisdom because there are things that are truly right and things that are truly wrong and not everything is what it appears to be at face value. And so we need wisdom to navigate that tension and that wisdom comes from a relationship with God. You cannot live as a faithful presence in the world apart from a relationship with God. And ultimately, we're never going to be able to make these hard choices to navigate through the mess and seek to bless others rather than protect ourselves until we see that Jesus is a faithful presence who, make, who through wisdom loves us and makes sacrifices for us. I mean, think about what he did for us. He left the comfort of heaven to come live in exile on the earth. While on the earth, he refused the temptation to separate from society completely. He actually was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He constantly got critiqued and ridiculed for his choice of dinner guests. He had a reputation around town for being a glutton and a drunkard, for being an assimilator, even though he wasn't actually any of those things. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but that's not wrong. But he was not a glutton and a drunkard, even though he had that reputation. He had a reputation as an assimilator. And at the same time, he refused the temptation to assimilate into his culture. He's constantly calling people to repent of their sin and trust in God. He actually holds a higher ethical standard than the strictest separators of his society. And because of his refusal to pick one of these paths and his constant walking of that narrow road of wisdom down the middle, everyone in his society turned on him and rejected him and killed him. But he knew that would happen. That's why he came to earth, because he loved us enough to sacrifice for us. In his death, he gives us the grace we need in order to live properly. He gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us in wisdom. Jesus' death purchases for us the relationship with God that's essential if we're going to live as faithful presences in the world today. And that brings us to the fourth ingredient for being a faithful presence. And that's a perspective that sees beyond the trials of today. Verse 21, the last verse in this passage says, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That might seem like a weird verse. If you don't know your ancient history, that's actually fast forwarding 70 years in one verse. And then it just rewinds at the start of the next chapter back to near the start. But here's why that's important. King Cyrus is a Persian king. Remember, they're in captivity in Babylon. Persia takes over Babylon. And Cyrus, the Persian king, when he conquers Babylon, he sends the Israelite slaves back home. King Cyrus is synonymous to the Jewish people with return from exile. The chapter is closing with a reminder that exile doesn't last forever. It was true then, it's true now. If exile has the last word, then the brokenness of this world is all we have to live for. It doesn't make any difference whether we live as a faithful presence or not. It's, it's like using a bucket to try and scoop water off the deck of the Titanic as it's going down. It doesn't matter how hard you try. The boat's going down and it's not going to make a difference. But if there's something beyond exile, if there's a return to our homeland that's coming one day, 
then everything that happens in exile has meaning and purpose. Everything is a seed that's being planted that's going to grow into a beautiful tree later on. And just like the Israelites, God has promised us that one day Jesus is going to come back. That one day Jesus is going to raise his followers from the dead. That one day Jesus is going to make all things new for eternity. That the things we do in this life will echo into eternity. And in that day, there'll be no more need to navigate the difficulty of life in exile because we're going to be home. But for now, the Christian life, it's a life in exile. And as we live in exile, we're going to face temptation to separate. We're going to face temptation to assimilate. And God calls us to live as a faithful presence in the world, to resist those two temptations, to trust in the truth of who he is and what he has done for us and how he rescued us so that we can live in a way that's truly loving to the people around us and that makes a difference for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that even in exile, you are our God, that you haven't abandoned us, you haven't left us, you haven't forgotten about us you care about us. You care about how we live and you call us to love our neighbors. God, forgive us for the times that we failed to do that, for the times where we've just chosen to separate to protect ourselves or we've chosen to assimilate to protect ourselves. But God, teach us to live as a faithful presence in our world. Teach us to trust in your grace and your love. Teach us to, to have wisdom Teach us to have a perspective that sees beyond the exile into your promise for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.